in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy in you, uh, my joy in you, that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Anthony. My name's Ruth. I'm one of the curates here at St. Paul's, and we're going to start by praying together. <coughs> Father God, we thank you so much for your word, the Bible. Thank you for what we can learn from it. I pray that your presence would be very tangible here now this morning, that you would rest with us and that you would help us to understand what you want us to take from the words spoken today. And I pray that anything that's not helpful would just fall away in your name. Amen. So it's Remembrance Sunday. Tomorrow is the actual Remembrance Day. And today we join with millions around the country, don't we, to remember those who lost their lives in war and conflict. Later on, as Jonathan's already said, we're going to go live to the Cenotaph with the BBC and watch as the Queen and Prince Charles and senior politicians lead our country in remembering the fallen. And as we observe those two minutes of silence, some of us may have memories of friends or family who died in conflict, not just the two world wars, but perhaps more recent conflicts. And some of us might even have memory of war itself either as military personnel or perhaps we were civilians caught up in what was going on. I know there are members of our congregation who remember the Coventry Blitz, for instance, and my father, who's coming up 90, remembers the doodlebugs flying over Sussex. So it's a solemn moment, and it's one that is right to keep. Those who died to protect us, who made that ultimate sacrifice, should be remembered, they should be honoured. And our country does this sort of thing very well. It does it with all due pomp and ceremony. Many of you may have watched the Festival of Remembrance at the Royal Albert Hall last night. And that's really poignant because it brings us images of young military personnel and the old soldiers as well, the old veterans. And all those people standing quietly as the thousands of poppy petals fall from the roof and land gently on their uniforms and the surrounding ground. It's a very moving image. And of course, it's the iconic sound of Big Ben. 
striking to mark the start of two minutes of silence. Perhaps it won't. This, I don't know if it's working this year or not. And then there's the retired and the active servicemen and women marching past the cenotaph, or perhaps being pushed past the cenotaph now because they're too old and fragile to walk on their own. But they do it with great pride. And there are the gun salutes that echo around our land. And then tomorrow, the many acts of quiet remembrance at 11 o'clock on the 11th day of November, that moment when the armistice came into effect at the end of World War I. If you've lived in this country for any length of time at all, those are familiar to us. We've grown up with those things, haven't we? And whether you are a member of the armed forces or not, or whether you're just merely an observer, I think we all get a sense of the weight of that moment. It's not about glorifying war, but it's about remembering those who died. And perhaps in some of us, in many of us, there's this hope that if we can just remember, if we can somehow absorb the true impact of what we're remembering, perhaps those things won't be repeated. Perhaps there's that hope. And then we realise that fewer and fewer veterans of World War II are meeting at the Cenotaph, are able to be there. And time goes on, doesn't it? And so these events give us a chance to stop and to think about what we are remembering, about what has gone on in our history. But of course, I don't need to tell you that the sad fact is that since the end of World War II in 1945, there have been 27 conflicts that involve British troops, costing the lives of thousands of men and women. And there have been many, many more around the world, haven't there? And footage is often beamed live to our televisions or our phones or our laptops or whatever as we watch communities that are absolutely wrenched apart by war and civil war conflict or religious intolerance or invasion by larger, greedier nations. Those two world wars that were supposed to stop war, to end all war, haven't stopped the brutality at all, have they? And so each year, more names get added to the list of those who die in conflict, and more poppy petals are added in our country to those that fall from the roof in the Royal Albert Hall. It would seem that fighting is not the answer. So it's not enough for someone to die to trying to protect populations or ideals or ways of life. That even making that ultimate sacrifice isn't enough to change human nature. Isn't enough to stop the bloodshed. So what is it that's missing? What is it that would make the difference? Is there a way that might have some impact on the world that we live in today? Our Bible reading that Anthony brought to us talks about that greatest love of all, the love that lays down its life for a friend. It talks about friendship that obeys commands because of love, not coercion. This is not a military strategy. And the words of Jesus in John 15 are seemingly quite clear. Love me because I have loved you. And then I've loved you because my Father in heaven has loved me. So it's like the ultimate cycle of love, if you like. The Father 
loved Jesus so much that he sent him to earth. Jesus then pours out that love into us so that we then pour it out into others who then pass it on even wider and so the circle grows, doesn't it? So more and more people experience this love for the first time and then go on to themselves pour out that love and praise to the Father they've met, the Father Jesus they've met, and this love gets poured out even further. But Jesus has a surprising conclusion to this love, doesn't he? If you love someone with the love that God has given you through Jesus, you should be willing to pay the ultimate price for another person. You should be willing to give up your life. And so he tells us quite blankly, quite, quite straight, that this love can be really costly. This is the love that's commanded by Jesus. We are to love one another as I have loved you. So this isn't some sort of flimsy, selfish love that falls apart when it doesn't get what it wants. We all know that sort of love. Or when it meets trouble. But it's the kind of love that never gives up and never, ever lets go. The verses that we had read to us today are part of a much larger passage. And they come sandwiched between the account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet and then his betrayal by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane and his subsequent arrest. So it's a very important time in the whole um, story of what's, what's going on for Jesus at that moment. And as we read it, it's as if he's trying to download into the minds of his closest friends all the last-minute information that he wants them to have before he is taken away and executed. So it's like he's really trying to cram, cram stuff into them. And so this is what I need you to know. Don't forget, the disciples have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. They're still hoping that somehow the Jesus they know, they've got to know over the last three years, is going to rise up as Messiah, overthrow the Roman occupation, and there's going to be great victory and fanfare as God's kingdom reign comes to that part of the world. The death of Jesus is the last thing that's on their minds. And yet, they've been really unsettled. As you read through from earlier in John, they've been really unsettled by some of what Jesus has to say with regard to the fact that he's about to leave them. He's going to go away. They hadn't expected that. And they, he also tells them that some of them are going to act in ways that they could not have predicted. In fact, we know that Judas has already gone at this point. He's no longer with them. And so we have this enormous privilege as we read through these chapters of listening in as Jesus teaches them, he points them to his Father, and then he prays for them. These are some of the most intimate moments recorded by the New Testament writers. They're amazing chapters. It'd be great to go. I know many of you know them really well already, but they are really good to read through, especially the prayer of Jesus for his disciples and for us too. And of course, if you look back through the Gospel of John, this theme of love is not something that is new. Back in chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, comes to see him in the middle of the night, 
we learned that God had so much love for the creation that he'd made that he was willing to send his own son to sacrifice him, to rescue that creation from sin. And we've listened in as Jesus has told people that he met about the love of his father. He met each of them where they were, didn't he? All those people who came to him or were brought to him. They were sinful. They were broken. They were diseased. In Lazarus's case, they were dead. But he turned each life upside down, didn't he? In order to bring glory to the Father who loved him so much and he loved so much. And all through the gospel, he's described in various ways. He describes himself as the bread of life. He's the good shepherd. He's the resurrection and the life. So he's the only one who can stand against the forces of evil in this world. He's the only one who could put right what went wrong in the Garden of Eden. And we've also seen him accept extravagant worship in costly oil that was poured out over his feet. But also, conversely, we've seen him take on the role of a servant as he washed the feet of his friends. So all through this gospel, we've watched as the Son of God, this man who was also God, shared our humanity and walked willingly to the pain and the humiliation of crucifixion. So now it's the night before his death. And he wants to really reassure his closest friends, his friends, not his servants. He wants them to know just how much he is loved. They are loved even. He wants them to love others with that same love. But he warns them that it might well be costly for them. It would be. We know it was for for quite a few of them. But he wants them to know that they have been chosen by him, by Jesus, and by his Father in heaven to be loved and to love others. And he wants them to know that all of this is rooted in this command to love each other. It's not an option. It's a command. Because the sort of love that loves others when they are indifferent or broken or antagonistic or just plain awkward is the sort of love that will change situations. And it's a love that is going to take Jesus to the cross, but it's a love that will change the course of history. So we all know what happened next. Jesus was arrested, he was tried, he was flogged, and he was crucified. His closest friends abandoned him, choosing to betray him, or deny him, or just run away because they were plain terrified, and they hid because it wasn't great to be associated with someone who was about to be crucified. They were scared they'd face the same fate if they were found And so, of course, by sunset on Good Friday, it seemed as though all their hopes and their dreams had died with Jesus. There was nothing left. But then Sunday came round, 
Sunday morning arrived and the tomb was empty. And Jesus' friends just started to dare to hope that this powerful love that Jesus had been talking about might just have won the day. It took them some convincing. They had to be sure, but they just started. Hope You can almost feel the hope levels starting to rise. As I've been preparing to give this talk today, it's really struck me how different God's ways are to the world's ways. Our world spends an awful lot of time and energy and money in remembering the fallen. There are huge memorials out there, aren't there? Lots of them in northern France and Belgium. There are medals for those who fought, and some of them are awarded posthumously for very great valour. There are military bands and processions. We really do do military processions awfully well, don't we? Or the uh, Grenadier Guards and co. And as I said, there are gun salutes and fly-pass by vintage aircraft. And it, it is right to remember. Don't hear me saying that's wrong, because these things bring comfort to many. And they act as a reminder to many more that war is brutal and costly and painful. So it is good that we have these remembrance times. But the sad fact is that none of these acts of remembrance will ever stop the bloodshed. And each year, fresh loss gets remembered. Remembrance itself cannot stop the fighting or erase the pain. But the way of Jesus is very, very different, isn't it? That battle that was won on the cross, that first Easter, was the greatest battle that has ever been fought or will ever be fought. And it was won by the Son of God who willingly chose to die. He wasn't ordered to. He did it because he loves us. And the ramifications of what happened are eternal. They're not temporary. That's the difference. And we're told in Scripture that one day all fighting really will stop. There will be no more tears or pain or loss or death. And whilst there might be pain for a little while here because we carry on living in this broken world, we can be confident that Jesus really has achieved what he said he would, what he set out to do. Because unlike the human casualties of war, Jesus didn't stay dead. Because the tomb was empty that first Easter and so we know that the powers of evil and the curse of death have been broken forever. And that sacrifice that Jesus made doesn't need repeating. It was a once-for-all deal. But what's staggering is that in contrast to the world, Jesus merely asks to be remembered in a simple meal. No fly-pasts or brass bands, no pomp or ceremony, just simple bread and wine shared amongst friends. These simple elements that we take and eat to remember 
that his body was broken on the cross as we break the bread and share it amongst us. And to remember that blood that streamed from his body because crucifixion is brutal. And we also know that it's a temporary act because we will only remember him like this until he comes again in glory and establishes his kingdom reign forever. So one day we won't have to keep taking communion because we'll be with him forever. It's a really stark contrast, isn't it? The quiet humility of the Son of God, who, let's face it, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and has all the riches that man could ever want versus the pomp and ceremony of our world. It's the contrast of the certainty of the battle being won forever through the sacrifice of Christ and the ongoing bloodshed of humans. It's the contrast of the joy and peace that comes from the empty tomb and the pain and misery that stem from battles that continue relentlessly. This evening, we're going to be taking bread and wine together and think more about what that simple meal means for each one of us. We're going to have a look at why ordinary, everyday objects like bread and wine have such profound significance for those who believe in Jesus. But for now, as we finish, I'd just like us to take a few more moments in silence and think about all that Jesus won for us and the way he did it the humility of what he asks us to do, to remember it. To thank him for his sacrifice. And then also to pray for those who have been bereaved or wounded by the wars that still carry on and for whom today might be particularly difficult. So let's pray. We'll stay, stay seated. <coughs> Lord, I just pray that you would bring to mind now things that we can really praise and thank you for, for what you've done for us. Pray that you'd remind us again how much we are loved individually, chosen and loved by you. Pray that you would help us to really think through what those very simple elements of bread and wine mean to us because of your sacrifice. Lord, for any who are here this morning who are bereaved because of conflict or war, we pray peace. We pray your comfort.
Lord, we pray too that each of us who know that we are loved by you, who have understood that the love that you give us comes from your heavenly Father, would be more and more able to pass that love on and out in ever-widening circles as we interact with those that we meet who are broken, who are probably bitter, who are angry, who need your love, who need that certainty, that hope within them. And finally, Lord God, I thank you so much that just as you took ordinary elements to commemorate your death and your resurrection, you use ordinary human beings like us, like me, to take your love out to those who need it so much. Let's pray to you, Jesus. Amen.